G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, we took a deep dive into neuro, an area of practice that I know very, very little about. Uh, so luckily, the lovely Crystal, or better known as the Brainy OT on Instagram, uh, jumped on here with me to talk all things neuro, how she got into the field, what she loves about it, uh, and and her mission with the Brainy OT brand and what she wants to 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 educate people about. So I hope you get as much out of this as I did and enjoy the episode. I was one of the people who came into learning about OT based off of just being in the right place at the right time, you could say. Um, I never had a family member or myself that needed an occupational therapist. I was in a program for high school where we actually get taught um, trades to probably go into and work in eventually. And I was in the physical therapy aid program. And I just one day went to the health fair at my school and there was a set up there in the health fair of occupational therapy students. And I see in big letters, occupational therapy. I'm like, well, I wonder what this is. I go, I speak to them. I was already thinking of doing psychology. Um, and then they explained to me occupational therapy and how it's holistic. And so I just read up on it and decided that's what I wanted to do. And from that moment on, that's the path that I was on. So which school did you go to? Well, for your OT? Yes. Um, I went to Florida International University in Miami, Florida. Nice. So you're in Florida now? Still? Yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. My, my, American, my American geography is not the greatest, but it's <laughs> actually really good that you're here because it almost seems I was starting to get a complex that every OT in America was from California. Because it seemed like There's every single person that I spoke to was, oh, yeah, I'm from California or, you know, other cities that are in California. And I'm like, is there anyone outside of California? So it's yeah. good that I finally found one. <laughs> I think it's been a couple. Yeah, California, California is huge as it is, like a state-wise, but there's a big OT presence there. I've yeah. noticed that too lately. <laughs> it definitely seems that way. I think most of, oh, I reckon... I reckon probably 90% of the OTs that I've ever spoken to in the States yeah. were from California. It's very odd. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. maybe it's just because I'm from a very small country. Well, not population-wise, not area-wise, but population-wise. So when you so when you finished OT, so that was that a master's program? Yes. Yep. So when you finished that, what's where what what did you go into work-wise? Where where did you start off your career? So when I finished the program, I was immediately offered a job in one of the places that I did my field work in. Um, that was a pediatric facility. And I enjoyed working with kids a lot. The only thing that kind of drove me away from it is finding job stability at the time was not easy. Um, so I decided to branch out, trying to find something a little bit more permanent and um, full time. Yep. And I actually never anticipated working with adults, but here I am now, and I love it even more than dating. So I think it was a good change for me. So we're in the pediatric study. People would probably know you better as the Brainy OT on Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, when you're working with kids, was there any, like, were you doing any neuro stuff? Had you sort of found your interest in neuro at that point in time? or? 
Definitely. Um, the population that I worked with in PD, it was a little different than what most of the therapists think of when they think of pediatrics. They may think more so of outpatient pediatrics where they see a lot of diagnoses like developmental delay, autism, Down syndrome. Um, in the facility that I was at, it was more um, medical diagnoses that required nursing assistance and care. So I had a lot of children who had had intrauterine strokes, um, that had had CP, that had different genetic disorders, things that are very rare that you never would expect to come across, but all of these children needed the medical care um, and weren't able to go to a regular daycare. So I got to get a little bit of my neuro experience in that. And it actually helped me when I transitioned to working with adults in neuro because you kind of take a step back and look at things from a different point of view developmentally. Like you've got to walk before you can run you gotta crawl before you can walk so yep it kind of set things in in a good way for me to learn because mm, okay i know exactly nothing about neuro <laughs> so this is going to hopefully be really good for me because i'm hoping to to learn at least a little bit of the basics so the the stuff that you were doing in pediatrics did that a carryover to when you moved into adults or is it like a completely different ball game it had a carry in over into adults um for the pediatrics you have to really focus on play and use that as your main mode and form of therapy um so we would play in ways that i'd set up the environment to work on their deficits so if we we're dealing with someone who has really high spasticity or high tone in their arms um, we could do some weight bearing over a ball while doing a puzzle. Just with an adult, I'm not going to have them doing a puzzle laying on their stomach on the ball because that's not very occupation-based for the adult. Oh, maybe that sounds I'll, like fun. Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe for an adult, um, I could do weight bearing while they're reaching for something while we're doing floor recovery um, methods for safety. And... Actually, with pediatrics, you also have to have a certain way of how you approach the therapy session. If you go in and you demand, this is what we're going to do first, this is what we're going to do second, this is what we're going to do third, and then I, what I say goes, that doesn't always work so well. So being a pediatric therapist also taught me to be very creative in my approach and build that rapport and use it to my advantage, which I definitely do all the time with my adults because with peds, with children, typically you're the boss and they listen to you. With adults... They're their own individuals. You can't expect them to just listen without having some sort of buy-in value into what you're showing them. Yeah, 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 for sure. So what what was some, I guess, of the more common things that you would, we'll start with the kids. What was uh, some of the more common things that you would see in the peds practice that you would work with? In the specific practice that I worked in, there were a lot of um, deficits with fine motor skills, with bimanual skills. So trying to get them to use the more affected side, um, attention, cognition, problem solving, all go together. A lot of socio-emotional factors also came into the picture because these children, many of them were from, the setting itself is driven by special needs for the most part. Okay. So a lot of them have different socio-emotional um, socioeconomic backgrounds. Yep. And so just providing them with them and their parents with the optimal strategies to increase their their performance in different skills was one of the main things that we would have to focus on. 
so, day to day with. So was a lot of the referral type, uh, like sort of coming from, like say, special needs schools, or where were they? Where were you getting them from? Um, the way that they'd end up in the facility that I was at, it's, it was sort of set up like a medical daycare. So the doctor would have to say that this child is not able to attend a normal daycare. They require 24 seven nursing supervision. Um, and so when they're not with their nurse in our facility, then they're home with their family with a nurse if needed. And some of them didn't need 24 hours, maybe they need 12 hours. It was based off of the idea that they were not medically stable enough to go to the school environment. Um, so that's pro- probably more to the, I guess, severe end of the scale than mm-hmm. if they're, you know, some people are re- requiring 24-7 nursing supervision at least. Oh, yeah. A lot of these children weren't able to feed themselves. Some of them had peg tube feedings. So they were very medically involved. And then some of them were on the higher end of the spectrum and they had other deficits where you look at them and they look like a typical child, but really they had a major heart surgery and were very medically touch and go. Hmm. So it was a good experience for me, definitely. Fresh out of school, it being one of my first internships, it really built on who I was as a practitioner and set me up for success in, in lots of avenues, I feel. Yeah, because I think like the the even just the range of things you would see would be massive in that mm-hmm. sort of that that area no and i also saw diagnoses that some like medical students very rarely see because they're so uncommon yep so and was it obviously there was nurses and the doctor like was it it was i'm assuming like probably more other disciplines there as well or was mm-hmm. it predominantly That's for neuro rehab type type they weren't per se specifically trained in neuro rehab um, just because PEDS is so general. It was a lot of general practitioners that kind of grew their skills by base off of being in that setting, but it was very multidisciplinary. We had our nurses. Um, there's a doctor who's in charge of the facility because there has to be someone to reference. Um, but there's also respiratory therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists. There was an education specialist um, because like I said, most of these kids weren't going to typical yeah. public school. So it was a very well-rounded um, program where all the needs that were needed by the children were met. And there were some kids who didn't need speech therapy or didn't need occupational therapy. So their specific day was tailored to that. And is is that kind of service, because I've never heard of that kind of, is that kind of service like fairly common over there? I don't know about for Australia, <laughs> but um, here it's called the Prescribed Pediatric Extended Care, and it's a type of facility. Um, it's not extremely, extremely common, like you'll see one in every city, Yep. but just here in South Florida, there's at least four that I can think of off the top of my head, so it's not uncommon either. It's one of those things that unless you ever needed it, you probably would never yeah. come across yeah, no, um, there probably are in Australia or it's something similar, but yeah, I guess because I've never worked in that area or required anything like that, I've never gone looking, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So you went from there, you went straight, or after that you went into adults? Yes. So one day I had decided, but the only issue that I had with working there and in my other PD job, which was the typical outpatient that everyone's familiar with, the only issue I had was that I was contracted as a per diem therapist. So 
when there was children for me to see, awesome. I go to work, I have fun with the kids and I get paid. But when there were no kids for me to see, there, there was nothing for me to do. Um, I, there was no money. Yeah. And unfortunately, as much as we all love to do what we do as occupational therapists, we need some sense of stability. Need to pay the um, bills. Yes, of course. So I decided to branch out. Initially, I had no interest in working with adults, but I was like, you know what? That's where the stability is. That's where the full-time jobs seem to be at this time. So let's go ahead, put my application, my resume out. And I heard back from the place that I'm at now, as well as a pediatric hospital. And I pursued them both to see which one that I'd be able to get to. Ended up getting this one first, my adult um, hospital job. And once I accepted this one, and I, my eyes were open to all the possibilities of working with different populations. I was very excited. And that's when the pediatric hospital job called me back. And I was like, you know, I, I'm actually excited about this new venture in life. So I accepted the job with the hospital that I'm at now. And uh, the interesting thing about the hospital I'm at now is, although I am passionate about neuro and that's where I want to be, that's what I want to do. Um, this hospital, obviously, that's not the only type of patient that we see here. We have people who come in for trauma, people who come in for orthopedic conditions. Um, and so I have the opportunity to rotate through these different areas okay. and work on my skill set as a therapist. Oh, that's cool. So what was the probably some of the biggest differences you found going from pediatrics into adult in that, in that neurotype field? So... One big difference is, like I said, we're not going to throw an adult on a bolster and have them do a puzzle on the floor. Um, there were things that I could take that I did in my PD practice and modify them so it's more adult-friendly and the adult didn't feel like a child. But then there were some things that you kind of use what you have at, in, within your hands grasp when you're first trying to get used to the new environment. And so I saw a puzzle one day and I was like, okay, well, let's do this puzzle. And I'm working with the puzzle. My patient has no problem with it because cognitively they had some deficits. So they didn't feel like they were being treated like a child. They just saw a difficult puzzle and that's what we were doing. Mm -hmm. But I had another therapist come over to me and ask me, do you think that's really age appropriate? Or do you think that the patient's going to feel like you're treating them like a child? And I looked at it from her perspective and I was like, well, it is a puzzle of a cartoon animal. So I kind of see where she's coming from, but the patient wasn't complaining, but I just wanted to start, um, when I made the transition, being more aware of those things, trying to make sure that whatever we're doing is more occupation-based versus just doing it for the sake of the skill of visual scanning and problem solving and putting things together fine motor-wise. So I started looking more at what did this person do at their baseline? What's their prior level function? What jobs were they interested in? And just that switch from going from play and just purpose of the activity mm. to making it more valued for the patient. That's interesting. That's something I've never thought of probably again, because probably because I've never worked in that area, but what, what's the general consensus with regards to like those type of activities? Obviously that particular therapist didn't think that was age appropriate, but if it's, like you said, if the, the client is open to it, like are we, is the general consensus that it's based off what the client is open to or is it based off what we perceive 
a person of whatever age they are should be doing? Like, what's the general consensus and in, in how interventions are chosen? Yeah, it's it's definitely true that I mean, what in this situation, I don't believe that I was wrong to have chosen it because mm. it was targeting skills that the patient needed. Um, but I also wanted to take from what she said and take it into my future encounters with different individuals. Um, I, for me, what works best is I look at what the patient needs, what they're willing to do, and what will be beneficial to them in the long run, or even in the short run, because you have to build it up in steps sometimes. Mm. So there's a big push for occupation base because we as occupational therapists are supposed to facilitate the return to doing these valued tasks. Um, but preparatory skills and activities, they have their part too. Sometimes before you can go jump into the big picture to dive into the deep end, you need to build the skills required and, and necessary for the ultimate goal. So I kind of just take it day by day, patient by patient. Um, one big thing that you'll probably hear a lot um, in neuro rehab is that occupational therapy and neuro rehab is not black and white. It's varying shades of gray. What's going to work for client A is not going to work for client B. And you have to be very willing to accept that and mm. work with them where they're at. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because I know uh, like my partner's a special ed teacher and I know that you know, kids, the the activities that the, the learning activities that they're often used with kids in those environments is tailored to, um, I guess, the age that they might be sort of delayed to, rather than their chronological age, because that's you know, if they're mm -hmm. functioning at a let's say a, a grade three level, but they're currently in grade six, giving them grade six work isn't going to work because they're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and I, I've seen the same thing working in mental health, uh, something that's fairly common with, uh, especially, you know, I've noticed it more with younger adults, especially with schizophrenia, is they tend to have almost, a, uh, I guess, a developmental delay from the, the age that they sort of start to develop the illness. So, like, I remember very clearly working with one guy, and I think he was about 24, but he started showing symptoms and started becoming unwell with his schizophrenia at about 16. And if you didn't know this guy was 24, you'd think he was 16. Like he behaved like a 16-year-old. So a lot of the interventions that we were targeting were, yes, he obviously needed to be able to, he had his own house and he needed to be able to maintain that like an adult, but a lot of his leisure activities were what 16-year-old kids would do. He wanted to go to skate and he wanted to, you know, go down the beach and perv on chicks and all that kind of stuff. Like that's the normal things to him. He missed a lot of those developmental milestones. So a lot of our interventions were tailored at that level uh, to and so give him the opportunity to go through those milestones and develop, you know, into a twenty-year-old sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's an interesting concept. I don't think a lot of people because I've heard the whole uh, is that really age appropriate thing before uh, in mental health and in a few other places. So I think it's something that people need to kind of put some thought into because if oh, I've seen a lot of people that will almost just, well, this is what I think a you know 35-year-old uh -huh. person should be doing, so this is what we're going to do. 
Whereas, yeah, mirroring their expectations. Yeah, on yeah, and I, I don't think it, I don't think it works very well doing it that way. And it's also, I mean, with neuro patients, one of the biggest diagnoses that we may come across is traumatic brain injury. And when someone has a traumatic brain injury, there's a multiple number of levels that they can be at. Are you familiar with the Rancho de los Amigos brain injury levels? I have heard of it, but I'm not, so I wouldn't say I'm familiar with it. So, I mean, it can go from the modified scales from level one, which is a comatose patient who's non-responsive to anything, to a level 10, which is a patient who's reached a great deal of um, recovery. And so they're modified independent in their tasks. And if I have a patient who's at a level three, four, who's just starting to be able to start interacting and engaging, but they're very distractible and sometimes inappropriate, sometimes aggressive, I obviously can't expect them to do something that I'd give someone at a level eight, nine, 10. So yeah, yeah. like I said, it's definitely, you have to, like you did, grade it to the patient. If the guy's going to respond better to skating and going to the park and you're going to be able to meet your goals through it. And that's the mode we got to take. Yeah. Yep. I think it's, it's something that people definitely need to, definitely need to put some thought into in their, I think in their individual practice anyway. It's sort mm-hmm. of what's going to work best. Because, yeah, yeah, there might be times when I, I could have pushed that guy to you know, do something more age And I did times when there was stuff that he needed to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just being aware of what's required and what you can do, what you've got access to, that kind of stuff. So what? So are you, So you're still in that job now at the hospital? Yes. So when I started, they hired me in the rehab department, um, the inpatient rehab. I'm not sure if in Australia they have a similar model, but here in the States, it's pretty typical that when they're first admitted to the hospital, they go through the acute care phase where it's mainly medical management, stabilizing the patient and determining where their next discharge uh, location would be. If the patient has good rehab potential, if they think they'd benefit from more intense therapy, then they go to inpatient rehab, which is where I started out in this okay. this yep. We do have similar. Okay. So in inpatient rehab, I encountered um, a lot of patients of varying um, diagnoses, but primarily stroke. And I got to build my skill set there um, primarily because there's a lot of therapists in the facility. Mm-hmm. So it was good because I was able to learn from other people. Someone across the room could be working with a patient with a completely different diagnosis than mine, but I'd see what they're doing and their reasoning behind it. And I'd be able to get some ideas um, to work on my practice. And then the downside was that there's always other therapists in there. So you do sometimes have that, oh, well, should you be doing that? Should you be doing this? When it's it's appropriate, it's great. Yeah, when it's appropriate, it's great. But when it's just kind of like, bullying and <laughs> that's not great yeah which i know a lot of therapists on social media have been talking about lately like the whole you're too green or you're too this um not um experienced or so so it can be difficult for some therapists in the beginning but in the end it builds up for a, a better therapist because it makes you understand why you're doing what you're doing hmm. and show the outcomes you get with your patient so is that something um, that's been happening because uh, i haven't seen any of that online is that something that's been happening in euro or just in general no um in general 
um, I had been seeing in the social media and the Instagram OT pages that some therapists that are newer to the field were getting kind of bullied by therapists that they work with by saying, oh, you're too green or you're too much of a go-getter. You need to chill. You need to calm down. Yep. Um, you're not going to make as big of a difference. So those those sort of that old chestnut. negative messages that a new therapist who's excited about their job should not be getting. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of people sharing that those were their experiences. And they were sharing it to, to tell others that, no, I'm not too green. Hmm. I may be a new therapist, but I still have my my input. And I went through school just like all the rest of you. And it's it's good to look at things from different perspectives. I think in a lot of cases, brand new therapists are often better equipped, especially with the theoretical stuff, are better yeah. equipped than, you know, OTs that have been out because that kind of stuff changes. And unfortunately, it's hard for established clinicians to keep up with, you know, the theoretical basis for the profession and that kind of stuff. Whereas new therapists are coming out with the latest evidence. Like they're, they're you know, they might need to some time to get their head around uh, like the, I guess the specific modalities of whatever clinical setting it is, but in terms of the theoretical stuff, they're probably better equipped than almost anyone else on the ward. So mm-hmm. I think that's something that we've always, in my sort of districts that I've worked at anyway, it's something we've always tried to kind of, I guess, hammer home to our established clinicians is that, you know, you guys are teaching the new grads the modalities but on the other foot you should be trying to learn uh, i guess the the updated uh theoretical stuff from them about where the profession is and where it's headed and you know new models and all that sort of stuff because even when i went through like 10 no when did I, 11 years ago the models that we got taught some of them like the new grads would never have heard of them. And likewise, there's a couple that they are really familiar with that we never got taught. Like, you know, it, the profession updates really quickly, so it's important to stay on top of these things and new clinicians are a perfect way to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it seems ridiculous that, yeah, people would be bullying them for being green. I'm like, well, of course they're green. They just finished. Like, that's the point. That's how you yeah. become not green. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes it stems out of um, they see how much new practitioners are willing to dedicate the time that they put in, the effort that they put in, and some individuals might feel a little burned out sometimes. They feel like the new grad who's going and putting forth 110% is making them look bad. But in reality, we're all here to serve a purpose of of enhancing and facilitating success in the lives of our patients. So. Yeah, that was the environment that um, I had a pretty good environment, but that the first one was inpatient rehab where I would see patients um, in that big open space. And then from there, they transitioned me to outpatient therapy where it was more of a one on one. And I was working on higher level goals with the patients, more return to community, more independence and hopefully returning to the job environment uh, if appropriate. that was one of my favorites because I feel as a therapist, you can really do a lot in, in that area. These people are working with you and they're then going home, putting into practice what you've worked on in the clinic. And we also had a lot of group therapies to actually 
allow opportunities for support with individuals who've gone through similar situations. We have a stroke survivor group. We have a brain injury support group. So those were my, my neuro uh, rotations. I then went to a medical surgical rotation where I learned a lot in acute care and medical processes. Um, and although I love neuro, I, I definitely take from what I learned there about different um, patient populations, a lot of cardiopulmonary diagnoses. And then now I'm back to neuro in the acute care. So back where it all begins when these patients first come in they have this stroke, this brain injury, a sudden exacerbation of a condition that they've had before. And that's where I'm at now. That's what I'm hoping to stay in a little longer. Um, I see that there's a big area for growth and for education because strokes are actually highly preventable. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people see strokes as a kind of passive a passive mechanism, like, oh, it happened to me. I couldn't do anything. It happened to me. Yeah, yeah. And it's important to educate people on the risks and and such. I mean, both. I when I was looking into American and Australian facts and figures, both of them say that eighty percent of strokes are preventable. So I think we gotta that, start. I think in Australia they've sort of started trying to frame it as a lifestyle disease. Yeah, so similar to it, you know, like your diabetes and that kind of thing. Like they've tried look at it as like yeah it's well what do you say 80 percent, 80 percent is preventable that's a massive that's a massive a lot yeah it's huge and um in aligning with that that um goal to increase education and awareness one of the things that i did on the brain eot was i made a little hashtag that I was doing weekly and then i took a little break and now i'm back at it but it was modifiable mondays and so it's to show the modifiable risk factors okay. that contribute to stroke. And like you said, diabetes is one, hypertension, high cholesterol, all these things that I see you've got are smoking. really lifestyle. You've got habits. smoking on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I just think that's one of the most important things for us as practitioners to take into account is our role in educating people um, on ways that they can modify. And we can do this from any level of care you don't have to be working with someone who's had a stroke to educate them you can yeah. educate someone that you see smoking hey <laughs> yeah, yeah and i think that's in, that's important is that the the only thing you really need is an awareness of what those uh factors might be and i can guarantee that any clinical area you're gonna see someone that is participating in one of these risk factors that you might be able to potentially save their life by educating them on that fact. So, yeah, no, that, I think that's awesome. So what was it? So on the, the Brain EOT, on the, the Instas, and you've got a website as well, What? where did that all stem from? What made you start that? So I've always been very excited to talk to people about neuro concepts, and I love the idea of one day going into academia and teaching but as far as this social media presence, I, it had never occurred to me, to be honest. And so one day I was um, talking to one of my friends. We had gone to an autism walk together. And she was telling me about her social media page, which, of course, I knew I had followed it. But 
she was telling me, oh, you know what? I think that you'd be great for this. I think that you should um, go ahead and explore your passion and share your thoughts. I think there's a big group of people who would want to listen. And sure enough, she's right. Her little shout out is to Heart of OT, which many of you are familiar with. Um, and so that's where it started off in May. I think it was probably like the last day of April or so where we had the conversation and I went and made the page. And then in May, it just happened to be uh, Stroke Awareness Month. And I was like, okay, let me really maximize on this and, and go ahead and share an mm -hmm. A through Z, neuro A through Z, in order to start educating people um, on the things that I've come to learn in the process. And I had also recently become a stroke certified um, rehab specialist. So that was another angle of me trying to educate and assist people in learning with all the things that I had recently learned. Yeah, I think the 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 A to Z was where I first came across some of your your posts um because some of the things that you were putting out there I'd never heard of um some of the the conditions and and that kind of stuff that were incorporated in that that A to Z and I think that's where I'm always looking for to learn new things and I enjoy that kind of content and I think that a, a platform such as Instagram or you know blogs or any any platform really that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy seeing and I know that um I can't remember someone sent it to me I can't remember who so I apologize if that person's listening going it was me um but yeah I I really enjoyed the the whole series and then it got to the end i'm like oh what is she gonna do next <laughs> i know it's pretty hard to follow that up yeah um but the thing that i love most about this platform and social media is that in the the time that i was doing it i was growing i had very few followers but even now people who come across my page they go back and they look at old pictures and they're still learning mm. because sometimes i was worried that i was putting all this effort in the day-to-day and it was just going to disappear into the background, but people are still coming and seeing these things and learning and putting it into practice. So and I it think, inspires I think, me to continue. And I think that's, these. that's the benefit of what, what we would, what in podcasting anyway, it's called evergreen content because it's stuff that people can come across two, three years time and they can look at it or listen to it in this case. And it still holds relevance or it's still, you know, good for learning. It's not sort of outdated. And I think that's the kind of stuff like what you've you've put out, especially with that A to Z to start with, that's evergreen content at its finest. Like I could go back through here and probably find some of these ones that I don't remember uh, and learn something new right now. So <laughs> like that sort one of content is awesome. One that I, I don't know if you saw, but one of my favorite ones that I'd love everyone to go back and look at because it was a dangerous stunt of me to try pulling was P is for penumbra. And it's one where... I have a picture of the brain and I use fire to demonstrate what a penumbra is. I won't play that right now because people can hear the audio. But yes, uh, I vaguely can't, oh, I can't play it right now to remind myself, but I have found that here on the, on the website. Would you like to explain? I can't play it, but would you like to explain what a penumbra yeah. is? There's, there's really, if you played it, it probably wouldn't be great because the audio there, it's just to hide the background of the flame eating the paper. But <laughs> the penumbra is a picture of a brain 
and I had my husband hold the lighter on the other side of the picture and start touching the paper so that you see the browning of the area that's coming into contact with the flame. And it eventually gets browner and browner and then it bursts into flame. And the idea behind it is that when someone has the stroke, the area that is immediately affected and becomes dead brain cells because of the ischemia is called the core. And then everything surrounding the core that's not completely for I'm putting air quotes here, burnt, um, is the penumbra. And penumbra is salvageable brain tissue that it's not completely gone. It's still there. We can work on it. We're going to have to work with a lot of neuroplasticity and continued rehab, speech, uh, physical therapy, in addition to our occupational therapy to work on skills that could have been lost, but they were spared. So the whole um, P is for penumbra. It's just a picture <laughs> of a brain that I set to fire. And then I was like, look, that's the core, the big hole in the middle of the paper. That's the core that's gone. But we can use neuroplasticity to work with what's left. Yep. Salvage some of that, <laughs> not destroyed tissue by fire. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I did see I that. I felt like a lot of people didn't watch it. So I was like, Man, I almost burned my house down, and no one saw it. I'm going to post that exact that specific post in the show notes of this episode, so everyone has to go and watch it because that sounds awesome. Because I did notice that one of the other things I did one of the probably one of the I think one of the first posts that caught my eye was your uh, post about Norman Doidge's book, one of Norman Doidge's book, which happened to be a favorite of mine. And I was like, yeah, someone else in OT yeah. that's actually reading this work and you know looking at applying it kind of thing mm -hmm. i feel like both of his books were well he probably he has more than two books but the two books that the are based main, off of yeah, the two main ones um i feel like anybody who works in this sort of population or in anything with people and they want to facilitate change they can read these books and they're going to come away with so much knowledge mm. um just it's it's amazing how the brain works and how it's so experience dependent and there's stories of miracles in those books. Oh, yeah, um, well, there is. So just for context, though, that was there's the brain's way of healing and the brain that changes itself. Mm -hmm. I think um, are the names of the two books, and the first one is essentially a lot of the the theory behind neuroplasticity and uh, you know social impacts on the brain etc and the second one is pretty much all stories of people who have um, put a lot of the theories from the previous book into action and how it's how it's impacted them and how they've improved a whole range of conditions um, I think there's eight or nine different people that they follow in that second book um, Really, really interesting read and an easy read if you're not a big reader. I'm sure there's audio books and all that sort of stuff, but definitely worth checking out. Even from my mental health perspective, there's some stuff in those books that I put into practice. Uh, I remember mm -hmm. working with a guy who had really long, he has, he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia for a really long time. I think he'd been in the system for 24. No, probably longer, maybe 30 years. I think he was diagnosed early 20s when I was working with him. He was early 50s. Um, and due to, we think, due to medic 
medication over that length of time, he was presenting or starting to present with Parkinsonian symptoms. So there was stuff, there was something in that, in one of the stories in the second book about a guy, it was a young guy who'd presented with Parkinsonian symptoms uh, and was using conscious walking. And that was something that we tried with this guy, uh, even though, you know, completely different setting and working in mental health, but same symptom or similar symptoms and was like, well, what do we got to lose? Worst thing's worse, he starts walking and exercising. So mm-hmm. um, it did work. There was other complications that kind of got in the way, but um, it was really it was an interesting thing to try with this guy because he wanted to get out and about and more mobile and that sort of stuff, but didn't feel confident. Like he was constantly feeling like he'd never actually fallen, but he constantly felt like he was going to, and uh, was I guess that paranoia that fear of falling was stopping him from exercising and walking even just to go to the shops to get some stuff so putting this in place and even even i even took the book and showed him i'm like there's you know science behind this you can read it if you want um he was he was willing to give it a go which was you know something pretty new for that guy and and he saw some good results in the time that we were actually able to do that with him so yeah, it's definitely worth a book. Though, uh, worth a book, worth a read. Those two books, because yeah, like I said, you you probably there'll be something in there that you can apply to probably almost any practice area or any people that you know. Yeah, I think so too. And that that particular chapter you were just discussing, I literally took that book to my grandfather who was diagnosed with Parkinson's three years ago, and fortunately. He's had a very, very slow um, progression in the disease Mm -hmm. in that he's not um, disabled by it, but he does know that he has it. Mm -hmm. And so he's at this this stage where he can make a difference just based Mm -hmm. off of that chapter that talk about the guy, people would say, you're lying, you don't have Parkinson's, you don't have Parkinsonian diseases. And so I showed him that and I showed him the exercise and the importance of exercise, the importance of initiating and getting up and going, doing stuff. And I'd like to say it changed things. He was a little more active for a while there. But it, I think that that book is really good for us as clinicians, but also for individuals who are in the patient role to show them that you're not a passive um, recipient of life. You have an active contribution that you can make towards your health. And even if it's just doing one thing differently a day, it's going to make a difference in the long run. In, because it just reminded me of another book, um, in your neuro work, do you do a lot of stuff, I guess, with the, the person's sort of social environment and their sort of connections with other people, relationships with other people, that kind of stuff? Or is it mainly focused purely on their, I guess, oh, Obvious symptoms, I guess you'd say. So in the different areas that I've worked in, we go about approaching those things differently. Um, Right now in the acute care area, I am a little more neuro, uh, a little more limited because we're admitted in the hospital at that point. The only people I see from that person's environment are their family members, if even that, because unfortunately a lot of people don't have um, support when they're going through these sort of things. And so if they have the proper support and I'm able to educate, I do so. Our hospital does a very good job of trying to integrate these people um, at this level, letting them know 
this and there's a monthly stroke support group. This is uh, an option for you. Here's a bunch of information. But at that point in the acute care world, you kind of can give information and you don't get to see whether they carry out with it. In the inpatient rehab, we get to see a little bit more of group dynamics um, because they're not the only ones admitted in the rehab facility. At that point, there's anywhere from 20 to 28 people that might be in there with them going through similar things. And it's actually quite humbling to see sometimes that they're here for treatment and for therapies following this life-changing event. And they actually develop friendships with these people who are mm. there for the same reason. Yep. Um, one thing that sticks out to me when I think back to my time in inpatient rehab was I had this man that he was a very hard worker and he came to the day where it's time for him to get discharged home. And they always love to see off their therapist, say, thank you, love you so much. <laughs> Enjoyed my time with you. Um, but this guy was like, can you bring me to this room? And I was like, okay. I brought him to the room and he hugged the guy that was in that room. And he's like, here's my number. Let's keep in touch. And so it was really nice to see that he formed a bond with someone. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And then in outpatient, that's where we really, really get to see a lot of the social environment um, coming to play. We have weekly groups that the patients can participate in where we go out into the community. They do things like bowling. Um, they've gone and taken public transportation to a mall. They have an annual dolphin swim where um, donations that have been accumulated throughout the year are taken and put to this, what's for most people, once in a lifetime experience. And they put this together for survivors who have been consistently attending our aquatic therapy program. So we do definitely, especially as occupational therapists, um, in conjunction with the recreational therapists and the speech therapists and the physical therapists, we do like to take their social environment and enhance it and make sure that they're not in this, they know that they're not in this alone. Because that's another thing that happens a lot uh, after a neuro injury is a sense of helplessness and depression. It's very common to, yeah. to occur because there's a, you, you are a person that you've been your whole life. And then from one day to the next, Just you're instant. not, you're different. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think one of the books I read and it was about the same time that I found Norman Doidge. I don't know if you've read it. It's by a guy named Daniel Siegel. Um, and I think it, I think this one might actually be an audiobook only, but it's called the neurobiology of we, um, and it's essentially about how neuroplasticity work based on relationships and connections and that kind of stuff that we have and how essentially really highlighting how important that is for one, but how it, the impact that that good and bad relationships can have not just on you know the obvious stuff like our mood and our emotions but but also on how our brain is actually wired so it's it's been something that i've always ever since i listened to it the first time it's only sure i'm sure it's only a couple of hours like audiobook um but it's something that i've always looked at mainly obviously in mental health a lot of the people that we see, you know, they're anxious, they're depressed, they've got whatever going on in their life, but quite often they, the, the ones that we used to see in the hospital and then 
subsequently in the community after that had really limited social supports or didn't have the the skills to develop a social network like for example the the guy that I was talking about before who presented as you know quite almost like a 16 year old at 24 years old he'd sort of missed all the skills that you would learn sort of late teens into adulthood on how to make adult relationships so he didn't have any sort of I guess age appropriate uh, friends Uh, he didn't know how to get a job he didn't know how to get a girlfriend he didn't know he didn't have any of these skills and from after reading that book I started sort of not just thinking of these kinds of things as social issues and emotional issues but also I guess almost as a neuro issue because those sort of deficits those social deficits over a long period of time rewire how we actually function and how we see relationships and what we get out of relationships and what we expect from relationships. And the same can be said, I mean, after reading stuff like that, I see that sort of stuff everywhere. And you'll see people that have, you know, had a string of bad relationships all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but are usually more likely to have a negative thought when it comes to getting into a relationship or come into a new relationship with negative uh, expectations, that kind of stuff. The social environment has a massive impact on how we think. That's why I was just curious as to how much it's looked at, I guess, through that process of going through uh, like an acute and then rehab and then, you know, community in that sort of neuro process, how much it's, it's weighted. It's a huge, huge, huge part of it. I was um, looking to see if I could find the researchers' names, but unfortunately I can't. But there's um, the social environment is a big part of our environment in general and what supports and structures we have in place. And there are studies that have shown that uh, the more enriched an environment is, the more plasticity that like you said the more plasticity um, that can be involved and also the better outcomes for the individual and the um studies actually looked at mice or rats can't remember which one but <laughs> um and they looked at them in solidarity in solitary confinement versus in an enriched environment with other mice and with little jungle gym things for mice and mm-hmm. they see that the brain itself is <laughs> Um, they see that uh, the brain itself grows in response to these um, supports that are in the environment. Yeah. And someone who doesn't have the social environment that might support um, the individual overall might not have as many opportunities made available to them. So they're already put at a disadvantage, an unfair disadvantage, but a disadvantage nonetheless. And so this is why it's really important for us as therapists to look into what we're seeing as uh, positives that could help facilitate progress for our clients and make sure that we make them aware of it and maximize on it. And also what we can see as areas that might be a little troublesome, maybe can promote some um, backsliding into maybe some more negative situations. Uh, A lot of patients who come to us with a neurodiagnosis, oh no, okay. 
a lot of people that come to us with neurodiagnoses, it might be following some risky behavior, like driving under the influence. Drunk driving could be a, a car accident, we'll have yep. brain injury. Um, we can have someone who's using drugs um, that maybe there's a high correlation with cocaine and stroke. And so if we have this person, their life has been saved, they've already gone through the rehab process, but then they slide back into those negative social environments, they're putting themselves at risk for, again, having injury. And they're also just not maximizing on the quality of life that they were, the life that they were afforded again. So it's very important for us to, to take into consideration the social environment, not only the people in it, but also the way that the person perceives themselves and what they do. What's the instance of uh, like illicit substance use among people who have, you know, had an accident or like, is it high or is it no more than normal, would you say? It depends because I feel that uses of substances are, it's usually as a crutch almost um, with some individuals, especially individuals who have mental health mm. illnesses. Um, it might be a little higher. Um, and then with someone who has a stroke, it's not very, so it's not really high yeah. um, from what I've seen because there's not as much pain involved yeah. in in that versus, but actually that's not true because there are some strokes that can affect the center of the brain. Um, it's called a thalamic pain syndrome that individuals who suffer from that, they have a central nervous system pain that it's intense. Maybe even a towel or something brushing on their shoulder can be perceived by their body as excruciatingly painful. And individuals with that sort of disorder could develop a a use of medication and maybe of illicit drugs to try and deal with the pain. But it's very, it's dependent on, mostly, I believe it's dependent on their pre-morbid status. Someone who had a high risk pre-morbidly is definitely going to have a higher risk following. Yeah, yeah. No, just, uh, just the, the study that you were talking about before, I've heard a similar study, but with illicit substances. Um, I believe it was Johan Hari that was talking about it. Uh, who like, the study he was discussing was essentially like this two, two lots of, I think they were rats or mice. I can't remember, but one they were given, I feel, I have a feeling it was cocaine and they would essentially, they were in a really barren cage. There was nothing for them to do. They were given this, you know, little thing of cocaine. They could use it whenever they wanted and they would essentially use it until they stroked. Um, whereas the rats in the other cage were given heaps of stuff to do. There was other rats there. They had, you know, there was a social environment. There was wheels and toys and food and all that sort of stuff. And they found that the rats in that environment in the really, you know, I guess rat heaven environment <laughs> didn't use. Uh, and they were using that as, I guess, correlation between uh, humans in their use uh, the theory being that people with less than, I guess, satisfying social and living environments are more uh, receptive receptive to using illicit substances. It just, yeah, I was wondering if just because the two studies seem similar, they were just obviously looking at one was looking at drugs and the other one wasn't, but 
the sim the situations that they were testing sounded similar. I was wondering just whether that meant that there might be a higher instance of illicit substance use among people who've had a brain injury or people that have had a stroke, that kind of thing. But if it, and there could yeah. be there could be a correlation between that, and I may not have seen it because people who come to therapy as outpatients tend to like in order for you to leave your house, get in the car, drive to the hospital, pay for parking, you have some sort of buy-in value and some sort of value for your life that you mm. want to go actively make it better. Versus there might be some people who, when they leave acute care, they go straight home or they go to a different facility and we never see or hear of them again. And for all I know, these people might not be actively seeking therapies to advance their, their condition, their state. So mm. maybe that's an area that's open for more um, research um, but I definitely do understand and I agree with the idea that individuals who don't have support and mm. who are not exactly satisfied with where they life, their life is at that point may be more prone to to drug use. But no, but that, and that's a that's a really valid uh, position that you you bring up in that the people that are engaging in the rehab by the time they've even got there they've done so much like they've bought in. I. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of effort to to get out and get out of the house and get out of your uh, tell depression me about that you're suffering. Yeah, I mean, even those of us who have not had a neuro injury, uh, we know that when we're feeling good, we don't want to put all that extra effort. But the fact that they show up that speaks to their perseverance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. So, why neuro? What is it about neuro that excites you? That got you hooked? I honestly, like, if I see brain scans, I get excited. I've, <laughs> I don't seen, know. I've seen you post them. You know um, how some people can talk for days about coffee and some people can talk for days about, like, retirement funds and stuff. I, <laughs> I actually had, um, in my job, there was a person there that was for retirement funds and they were talking about it and I could see it in his face. He was so engaged and so excited to talk to me. And all I kind of heard was, Blah, 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 money grows. Blah, 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 blah. And it's not that I was tuning him out. It's just that it's not my area that I'm passionate and excited about. But neuro, I mean, I don't know what it is about it. I guess it's the fact that it, all of our brains are so different. And the whole nature versus nurture thing that we're presented with when we first get into school. I was a psych on undergrad, I did my bachelor's in psychology. And so when I first came across that, argument of nature versus nurture it was a little more like oh duh it's most likely nature you're born the way you are and then things change or nurture <clears throat> and then things change as you're nurtured but now you see that two individuals can have the exact same injury to the exact same part of their brain and have completely different outcomes so i like to get the person how they're clinically presenting i like to look at the radiology results and see exactly where the injury was. I like to be able to discern, oh, well, it happened in this area. So maybe I'll see this deficit versus this one. And I just feel like I'm able to make such a difference and help individuals when I go in there and I empower them with knowledge. And I, I, I love neuro in general, but I feel like my area that I'm most excited about is stroke because like we mentioned, how preventable it is. Mm. how much education goes into it. There's an acronym that everyone and their mother and their father and their children should know. 
and that's B fast, B E F A S T. And you need to know it because anyone can have a stroke Um, and educating yourself and those around you can save lives. And so I'll go ahead and say what those letters mean. Please do. B is for balance. And so if there's any sudden change in balance, sudden change in your equilibrium, some people say that they felt like they were drunk and they're walking. Um, that could be a sign of a stroke. E is for eyesight. A very large portion of strokes can affect eyesight, can um, cause diplopia or blurred vision, double vision. And some people just write it off as, oh, maybe I have a headache. But it's actually a possible symptom of a stroke. Uh, F, once we get into the fast, a lot more people know the fast. So F is for face. You ask the person to smile if they feel like one side of their face is droopy. That could be a symptom. A is for arm. Raise both your arms. If one is drifting or not able to move at all, that's a classic sign. Uh, 93% of people, according to research, know that sign of stroke. S is speech. You're talking and you sound a little funny. That could be a stroke. And then T, it's not a symptom. It's more of a practice, a protocol. T is for time. And that is because there is a clot-busting drug that can markedly improve outcomes following a stroke because if you're having an ischemic stroke it can break up that ischemia the clot in the brain and that was so, just with regards to that one that's one thing i've been told here in australia is if you do feel like someone is having a stroke don't drive them to the hospital call the ambulance because the ambulance carries that drug yeah and also the ambulance is going to get much quicker mm. um service at the hospital a lot of another big thing as our countries are becoming more aware of this, the importance of medical attention for this, a lot more um, stroke, comprehensive stroke centers have been established. And I saw that that's something you guys have in Australia too. I had a little stat that I found. It says that um, regional Australians, so I guess people living outside the city, mm-hmm are 19% more likely to suffer stroke than their city counterparts. And the same thing can be said here in the United States, rural United States versus city. And the reason why is because one, it takes longer to get services. And two, the hospitals that might be in these more rural or regional areas might not be comprehensive stroke centers. So that just goes to show even more so, don't drive the person or don't have yourself driven. You get an ambulance and they'll take you to the right place. <laughs> I think, well, where I am, I think technically would probably be classed as regional. It wouldn't be rural. But yeah, very, yeah, Townsville would be regional, I think, where I am. Um, Let's it, put it this way. Your, your geography of the U.S., that's how my geography of Australia is. Uh, I wouldn't even <laughs> say my geography of Australia is that good either. Uh <laughs> No, I'd say yeah, like where we'd be, we'd be probably our hospital and and everything would be probably more of a regional center because anything there's a lot of sort of small towns and stuff around where we are that if anything happens, people are airlifted into into here, and then if it's anything super serious from here, uh, they get airlifted to the capital city, which is a fairly long trip, so. Because I think the country's so big, uh, some of our regional hospitals have got more of the services that they might see more often. 
So I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if if we've got some of that stroke stuff here. But I'm yeah, I wouldn't couldn't say for sure. I've never really I, I, the only reason why I say I'm sure is because I've been hearing such great things of of the Stroke Association in Australia and how many individuals are given the appropriate care and the appropriate referrals for therapies. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great. I mean, for something that can be prevented or at least positively impacted by providers giving the right information, I think it's very important that we, we do our part. I know, uh, especially probably more down south. Yeah, I think in the sort of Melbourne area, I know there's a lot of research within OP around stroke uh, and, and rehab modalities. I know my my friend, Professor, I can't even speak now, God. Professor Natasha Lannan, uh, I know she's done all, her and her myriad of PhD and whoever other students that she supervised have done a lot of work. Uh, around strokes i think strokes kind of her her thing as well down there i think she's out of um she's at monash uni but she's also at the department of neuroscience at alfred hospital which i think is in melbourne or near melbourne again my geography is not strong i know she's near melbourne so i'm assuming that alfred is as well so um yeah, I know there's a lot. Every time I go, every, I only know that because every time I go to an OT conference here, it doesn't even matter if it's a state conference or the national conference or whatever it is. If there's anyone from down that way, there's usually a really strong uh, flavor of, of stroke-related rehab, uh, stroke-related research coming out of down there. So, yeah, it's good to hear that, you know, that's, I guess, recognized in other countries as well. That's That's really awesome. Because I know, yeah, like they've they've set up some really, you know, uh, wrong um, researchers in that field here. So it's good. Another country that I'm going to give a shout out to yeah. is Canada. There's um there's a resource that I'd like to share with everyone. Yeah, it's called the Evidence Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation, and that resource has top notch re um research available to clinicians um, to kind of educate on the different processes and the different areas that can be affected and even the most um, research significant um, methods of treatment for rehabilitation. A lot of the data that was shared with us in the, in the certification course that I took for stroke rehab was from this particular resource. So I think it's a good one for people to go ahead and review especially new practitioners who maybe feel like they're a little less informed on clinical practices and it's there open for the public. So I'd advise people to go check that out. Yeah. And if you've got a link, I'll throw the link in the show notes. People can write on it and then go and have a read. Yes. I'll definitely share the link with you. I have to look for it. I usually just Google the whole thing every single time. But <laughs> Like it should be on my favorites tab. That's how often I go and look at it because I also use it to, to show my patients we're doing this because this works. And this is the proof that this works. So what's, I guess, what's, what do you see or what's next for the Brainy OT as a, a social media brand, I guess? What, where, do you, where would you like to see it? Where do you want to take it? What do you want to do with it? 
when I initially set out to create it, um, my idea was to share exactly as I'm doing, share resources, educate. I would like to make the site a little more um, organized in having specific to caregivers, specific to patients, specific to students and practitioners, because I think all those areas of people are interested, they're listening, and the, the information is given differently based off of who's the receiving party. I can go talk in medical terms to some people and then some people have to really break it down for me to ensure that they're receiving the message and they're understanding it and they're gonna be able to put it into practice in their own lives. So I really would like to expand on the website. Um, I had toyed with the idea of doing a blog, but I need a little bit of inspiration to see what people wanna hear, what they wanna read about. Um, and then ultimately I'd like to maybe present at a national or at least regional state level. Um, I'm hoping to go back to school for my doctorate. So Very maybe good. there's a research program. Maybe I can use what we were talking about in um, reliance on illicit drugs <laughs> or for people uh, that, that population that kind of escapes that no one knows about yeah. after the acute. It's the people that slip through but, the cracks. Exactly. And I just want to keep, promoting um, health education, uh, an area that I didn't touch on with you, um, but I think it's very important is the cognitive biases that we as practitioners might have. I see it a lot in my workplace where someone will look at a patient and say, oh yeah, he's not going to do well. Okay. And then the patient's like 24 hours post-stroke. How, how can you say that? How can you already put that negative um, umbrella over that person's head? So I want to set out to change that and educate people on how important it is your approach um, to not allow them to end up falling through the cracks just because you thought that they didn't have the potential. In them. So how how did how does a a practitioner end up in that mindset? Like what? How does that happen? How does that come about? I wish I knew because then I could prevent it. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like. It can be a personality thing. There's a lot of biases that come into play that we're not even aware of, implicit yep. bias. Um, I did a post on it a couple of weeks or maybe months ago about, um, I think it might've been, it's the post that has the picture of the two different ethnicities. I think it was a Hispanic woman and an African-American male. And I talk a little bit about biases and how even if someone doesn't classify themselves as someone who may be racist or think of different people in different ways, these things can implicitly work their way into our brains and they can affect our decisions and our judgments of individuals when that individual in all reality did nothing to you to deserve that. So it's, it's been supported in research that individuals of different ethnicities might receive different treatment in healthcare and it's something that shouldn't be happening. So not to say that it's always going to be a race thing. Sometimes it could be a, an age thing. Yep. People look at an older person who's 97 years old who had a stroke and they say, oh, they've lived their life. That's it. This is it for them. No, that's not the case. This person wow. still has, they're still with their heart beating. They still have a chance. We're going to give them all the, the work that they can get. So uh, generally, if this you would hope isn't coming from a place of malice, it's and like a lot like of you said, it's, it's, not even it's an it's implicit bias. It's something that they probably yeah. don't even know that 
you know, they're, they're doing kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, some people might have had an individual who had this stroke and this area of the brain or this brain injury, this way that they came to get the brain injury. And they'll think, oh, well, last guy I had died. Or last guy I had had horrible progress or potential. Yeah. And they might carry the past of other clients that they've treated and project that on this person. And I feel very strongly that whatever you project onto the patient, whether it's positive or negative, it's going to affect them tremendously yeah. and their, their ability to, to meet their goals and their willingness to meet their goals. If you go into a room and you tell someone you're never going to move your arm again, that's going to stay with them for the rest of their life. Even if they had all the potential and the plasticity in the world, they're not going to move their arm because you already told them that and they believed you. I think the the best way I've ever heard that described, and again, I'm terrible memory. I can't remember who told me. So if you're listening, please forgive me. Um, was like OT, as OTs, we are extremely aware that a person's environment can impact their occupational performance. Well, when someone's engaging in rehab we as a therapist become part of their environment. So that's the whole concept of therapeutic use of self. And that can work in a negative way if you're going to bring, you know, generally when I, I discuss this with my students, I'm talking about when they bring their baggage from home uh, mm-hmm. and into a therapeutic relationship, like it's going to have an impact. You are part of that person's environment. And like we said, we we know without question almost that, a person's environment is going to have an impact on their, like every OT model shows that it's going to have an impact on their occupational performance. So one of the things I think I try and do a lot with my students with regards to bias and, and, and that kind of stuff is his self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, if we, cause I, the same thing happens in, in mental health. I've seen it with not just OTs, all, all different clinicians. Like people have, um, I've seen it happen, people have specific diagnoses that they're just like, oh, this, this person's going to act like this and I can't deal with that today kind of thing. Or again, it could be uh, a race thing, it could be uh, a sex thing, it could be an age thing. Um, it happens a lot unfortunately i'd like to say it doesn't but i'm not real good at sugarcoating things but one of the things that i I try and get my students to do a lot of is reflection self-awareness because i'm a firm believer and i've seen it happen a thousand times that a lot of the times these biases happen because people just don't know that it's there and the simple uh fact of becoming aware of it like it might be that I, or for instance, in Euro, it might be that, you know, your grandparent had a stroke at a certain age. So someone who comes in of a similar age to that grandparent, however long ago it may have been, you may have this automatic thing like going to end the same way, whether that was good or bad or whatever. Um most people may not actually put two and two together until they actually sit down and do some reflection and come up with what might be causing that. Once you do, I think it it lessens the impact almost immediately just being aware of it. 
Definitely. Especially that we're a profession full of empathetic beings, it feels. So once you put that empathy and you, you stop and you realize, okay, why do I have this, this idea of this person? I, a lot of times when I see people get frustrated or even myself, I might get frustrated. Maybe you have a particularly difficult um, patient who just doesn't want to work with you. Mm. You stop and you think, would you be all in on jumping up and doing what this therapist is telling you what to do if you had all these other things that you were worrying about at the time. So I feel it's definitely important to put forward that good foot um, as a practitioner, make sure that you're meeting them where they're at and, and asking them, what is it that you feel we need to work on? Giving them a little bit of power in their, their rehab, a lot of power in their rehab mm. um, goals. I think that's, that's one of the things, especially with the, one of my, my pet peeves is when people say difficult clients or because mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't believe that that's a thing. Yeah. It I mean, might... that's just you projecting your problems on them. <laughs> exactly. Or it's just you not having found a way to connect with that person yet. You might need to broaden, you know, your communication skills a bit. Because uh, contrary to popular belief, you're not perfect. And you don't know everything. And neither do I. And neither does any of the amazing, really super smart people that I've ever met in my life. They're all exceptionally good at some things, but no one knows everything. And everyone can improve on especially communication. So anytime you're thinking, oh, this is a difficult person, that's an implicit bias. If someone else has told you, oh, this person's being really difficult today and you go into that room going, God, what am I going to do? This person's difficult. Then you're probably not going to connect with them because you're automatically expecting something that may not be there. Yeah, and then you're interpreting everything that comes out of that person's mouth in a negative light when really it's not always the intention behind the word exactly exactly and that's where again that self-awareness can come in like if someone said oh such and such is difficult how what sort of day has that person has that other therapist had like if they've had a shit day then yeah they're probably interpreting everything in a negative light that doesn't mean you have to as well or okay such and such i know how they communicate they've had difficulty with this person i might try something different like you've you've got options, um, and then I think that's important to not get stuck in a I guess a one trick pony kind of thing with communication. You need a range of different techniques and tools that you can use that you can pull out when you need them and use them when you need them. It's, yeah, it's about being flexible, especially with people like you know who may have had a brain injury who sometimes can react to different things in ways that you are not expecting, whether it's, you know, aggression or I've seen some people that get like super flirty and that kind of stuff, but it's stuff that you don't expect given the the social stimuli that's there at the moment, at the time. Um, So it's important to be flexible and be able to manage situations and be able to support people because sometimes they can't help it. So it's up to us to be able to... Uh, I guess, oh, I don't even know how to say it, just manage the situation more mm-hmm. more effectively. 
be the professional. <laughs> yeah, we, we're, we're supposed to have the skills. And if we don't have the skills, we have to develop the skills because not everybody's going to fit in every practice area. But if you're in mental health, you should love mental health and you should know what works with your clients. If you're in neuro rehab, you shouldn't be surprised when your brain injury, um, the patient with a brain injury is throwing things. And I mean, it is what it is. You have to take the person and find what works for them. And especially when you were mentioning the, the flirty behaviors and maybe even the aggression. That if you just respond in the slightest bit of the wrong way, you might be promoting the behavior. So you have to be very um, cognizant of how you approach the behavior, whether you ignore it because you want them to eliminate or to decrease it, or whether you redirect. It's very important how you use your therapy piece of self there. 100%. Uh, oh. What have we missed? What, have, what else? What else? Is there anything else you want to cover? Have I forgotten? Have we not gone over anything at all? Anything you want? I think most of the things on my list we got to check off. <laughs> I don't have a list. So <laughs> I don't have anything to check other than learning from you, which has been really, really interesting. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming along and having a chat. Thank you so much. And I'd like to let everyone who's listening know that if you guys ever have a question, my inbox is always open. I love interacting with people, sharing resources. Like you said, we don't always have the answers, but when it comes to this practice area, I'm able to find the answers if I don't have them. So I'd love to to help in any way that I can. Yeah. And where can people find you? Your Insta, your website, your where can people find you? Yeah, I mean, I've made all the social media websites that I possibly could with the Brainy OT, but I'm really only active on Instagram, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I'm there. And I look forward to interacting with people. If you go to the Brain, I'll put the link up. I'll put the link up to that specific post that we were talking about earlier. Uh, with the Brainy OT on Instagram and links to every links to the website and a couple of other podcasts that you've been on uh, in your Instagram. Uh, profile. Yes, I was with Couldn't Mandy on Seniors Flourish, where we talked about the principles of neuroplasticity. And there's a lot of information there. Anyone who, you don't even have to work in neuro. You could even just thinking be thinking about how you want to change your life. And mm. you see the principles of neuroplasticity and how you can optimize um, making and meeting your goals. So. Definitely, I've I've had a listen to that. Jump over onto Mandy's podcast and have a listen to that episode. It is brilliant. Uh, but yeah, so that link is is in the Brainy OT uh, Instagram profile. There's a little link there, and it's the podcast is in there as well as the website, and I think another podcast, something else is in there. But yeah, all your your contact details, you're pretty easy to find. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> pretty easy to find. Quick to answer. <laughs> Quick to answer. Easy to find. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for coming and having a chat, Crystal. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, thank you. Take care. <laughs>